Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from The Walkleys. Today's podcast is about press freedom and investigative journalism. This year in Australia, we've seen unprecedented attacks on journalists, from raids and digital surveillance to court suppression orders and pressure to reveal sources. You're about to hear from an all-star panel of award-winning journalists about how important sources and whistleblowers are to investigative journalism. They'll talk about why this kind of reporting is critical to our democracy and the risks that journalism faces in the current climate. This talk was recorded at the State Library of Western Australia on November 2nd as part of our journalism festival in Perth called Shining a Light on the Truth. Now here's session moderator Dr Joseph Fernandez. He's an associate professor at Curtin University and he'll introduce the topic and the speakers. Enjoy. Today's discussion is a timely one. In recent times, we've seen a big national campaign by Australian media organisations and the Right to Know Coalition with television ads and blacked-out front pages. It takes a lot to get the media to band together rather than to tear each other apart. So what are we dealing with here? We also saw the Australian Federal Police raids in the middle of this year on the ABC and on individual journalists. What does this mean for how journalists work, particularly investigative work, the kind of journalism that serves the public interest? What does it mean for the sources and whistleblowers who come forward with information in the public interest? We want to talk about investigative journalism, press freedom, and on that note, please welcome our panelists. I will start with Mr. Hedley Thomas, or shall I say Dr. Hedley Thomas, who has an honorary doctorate conferred by the J School in Brisbane. And Hedley began his career in newspapers at the age of 17 as a copy boy at the Gold Coast Bulletin. He has been a foreign correspondent in London and spent six years at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Returning to Queensland in 1999, he's also won multiple awards. Among them, seven Walkleys, including two gold Walkleys. Let that sink in. <laughs> Headley is only the second person to ever win the prestigious gold Walkley twice. He won the 2018 gold Walkley for the Teacher's Pet podcast series which he investigated and wrote, and the 2007 Gold Walkley for exposing the fiasco surrounding the police pursuit of Dr. Mohammed Hanif. Uh, Headley is the author of Sick to Death, about a surgeon, Dr. Jayant Patel. Headley lives in Brisbane with his family. Please give Headley a warm welcome. Thank you. Alison Sandy is a multi-award-winning journalist who has been lodging freedom of information applications since starting her career 20 years ago. Alison joined the Seven Network in 2014 to become the nation's first female FOI editor. Last year, she lodged almost 800 applications nationwide. 
Allison is a fierce advocate of the media's role in holding governments and their representatives to account, and she has successfully fought and won several appeals for access to documents under FOI laws and uncovered details that have contributed to positive changes in legislation. Some of Allison's more successful investigations include revealing the extent of child brides in Australia, where children are regularly being forced to marry much older men, and a year-long FOI investigation into the extent of sexual assaults across the nation's 39 universities. Most recently, Alison has taken on the role of executive producer of the global hit podcast, The Lady Vanishes, which has more than 4 million downloads and still counting. Uh, it's actually almost 6 million now, sorry. Almost 6 million. <laughs> Let's give a big hand to Alison. Oliver Gordon, at the far end there, is a journalist based at ABC Alice Springs. He works across all platforms, but most enjoys narrative investigative journalism. Prior to joining the ABC, Oliver worked in the global health and development sector with organizations such as the World Health Organization. This background in global health and development informs much of his reportage, which appears on programs such as AM, The World Today, and Background Briefing. Oliver last night asked me if I knew what TikTok is, and I said I don't have a clue. Um, and I don't know if he will have the opportunity to shed some light on that during his presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to Oliver. So with that backdrop, I might get the show on the road and start with any one of you who wants to go first. Well, I'm happy to go first just to qualify one thing. I feel a little uncomfortable being called doctor. Uh, so please don't call me doctor. Um, as Joseph correctly said, I entered um, journalism at 17, so you're probably trying to work out how did I go to university, you know. And I didn't go to university when I was 13. I went straight into newspapers, so I, was, I feel like a bit of a fraud being called a doctor. So we don't need to use that. Thank you. All right, well, I'm, I'm happy to start in relation to freedom of information, which is obviously a very key element to press freedom, and I've been very loud on this campaign that we're doing at the moment in the right to know, and it's important, I think, to see how FOI has changed from when I started 20 years ago to now, and I can say it is getting a lot worse, and certainly the older the legislation, the worse it is, and people may say... FOI and how does that relate to the average Joe public? Well, with the latest podcast we did, The Lady Vanishes, that came off the back of an, a Freedom of Information application. So this is just your average Joe, which is, her name was Sally, and she put in an application to find out what happened to her mum, you know, and what happened with the police investigation into her mum's disappearance because she wasn't on a missing persons list. And, and as far as she knew, her mum wasn't found. So for her going through that process, she ended up getting back a file, and this was New South Wales Police, but we also went through the AFP, that was heavily redacted and didn't answer any of the questions. And so I came in, for someone it's quite intimidating, because the, the laws are not easy to navigate, as you, 
You know, they're supposed to be there for the public to be able to find out whatever they need to know, whether it's about themselves or about the situation they're in. It could be a disgruntled worker who has left the workforce and wants to know, you know, or, or sacked or whatever, and wants to know the issues with that. Or, you know, it could be anything. And these are fundamental rights. And as uh, Oliver will probably go on about next in relation to the, the First Amendment with the US and, and the difference with them and the freedoms they have. So anyway, this is Sally's story in this podcast and how she wanted to find out what happened to her mother. What we did find out is that the police and all the authorities didn't want her to know what had happened because obviously there had been mistakes made and as a result it was swept under the carpet and they just said, no, no, she's, she's out there somewhere. She went missing of her own volition even though no one has seen her for 23 years. And we fought that. And we're still currently, before the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, waiting for a decision on getting the police file, a more comprehensive copy of that, which just outlines, one of the key things, is just the outlines of the dot points as to why she was taking off the missing persons list, the register. So that's all, you know, as her right to know why her mother wasn't... Anyway, the, the police have now put her on, through our investigation, have put her back on the missing persons register basically shamed into it and and you don't want it to be a police bashing exercise but I always say it's not what they've done wrong in the past it's what they do now once we bring it to their attention because mistakes happen big organizations you know there's a lot of people it's a small police station in Byron Bay that took the call in the first place so anyway so that that in itself just highlights and, and New South Wales has the best FOI laws in the country and it was that hard going through that. Now, we had the review process, which is long and prolonged and difficult, but it's much better than, say, the Australian FOI laws. New South Wales laws are 2009, and the Australian FOI laws are 1982. So you can just imagine how the world has changed since 1982, the amount of documents that are available now, the types of documents that are available now, and... Probably the worst thing about it, and it's things that have been highlighted in the newspapers lately, is how good public servants are at exploiting the loopholes in that legislation after having almost 40 years to perfect it. So it's all those sorts of things. And, and I'll, I'll just finish with this last point. One of the things that, you know, as it gets worse, to remember, if you look at any country in the world and press freedom in that country correlates directly with personal freedoms. So you see, you know, so Russia, you know, obviously their press freedom is terrible there. They poison their journalists. And, you know, again, you know, their personal freedoms as individuals. So people, I think these laws are there to protect the people, to make governments open and accountable and transparent. And until we get some real change and proper funding for the review agencies, then it's going to be a lot harder to get the truth out of the governments. Yeah, I was just going to say, Alison's become a full-time expert in FOI, and I think it's so valuable that she's performing that role because, in my experience and and in the experience of many other journalists who are not practising FOI as as their round, the frustrations and the hurdles put in front of us when we're also trying to break other stories, the hurdles put in front of us with FOI have become such that many of us, I'm afraid and embarrassed to say, have probably just given up on doing FOIs. We just think it's too hard, the delays are too long, and when the feedback from the department requires us to spend a very significant amount of our employer's money to receive the documents that that should ordinarily be provided, 
for very little charge. It's a big disincentive. And clearly, that's been part of a trend over many years. I remember as a very young journalist, the, the advent of FOI in Queensland, and Alison and I both from, from Brisbane. But in the late 80s, Queensland went through something of a political social revolution as a result of some fantastic journalism by Phil Dickey from the Courier-Mail, Chris Masters at the ABC, and their expose of police and political corruption in our state. And as a result of that, the Bjorki-Peterson government was swept from power and a new Labor government came in, the first in many years, and there was a big reform agenda which included FOI for the first time. And, and it was this wonderful, shiny new thing that didn't preclude the sorts of things that are precluded now. And other states were also becoming adherents to FOI at that time. But you know, we're going back 30 years. Over the decades, over the years, it's just been wound back more and more to the point where, unless you know, I'm just doing it very badly, it's almost too hard to justify the time spent on it. And that's why the role that Alison performs is so important. But she's one person. I guess that's why you're doing 800 a year. <laughs> well, you have those ones that do go on for a long time. I've had ones that go on for two years. And that's why you might, you know, you have those simmering, I guess, the slow cooker sort of situation. And, and that, yeah, as Hedley said, if you're doing... I mean, I'm lucky that this is my job, except when I'm doing a podcast as well. It's not it's my second job. But if you're doing so many other things and it's not your job just to do FOIs, then it is. It is so time-consuming and the arguments and the argy-bargy, and it's just like any round if you do, if you take on a round, you get a lot better at it the longer you do it. And you know they've got a checklist they go through of how to block. All right, the first thing we'll do is we'll, we won't, we'll say that the scope is invalid. We'll say it's too long or there's too many things captured and then and, you know, so that's the first step. And then, you know, so you just go, oh, you're doing, you know, number 15 of, you know, and so you just go through the motions of of the, the, the things that they'll put in front of you. And I can see with people like Headley, you know, I mean, Headley's going after the gold in FOI. You wouldn't be doing an application if it was just for, you know, I do a lot of mainstream stuff as well, just quick hits and things like that. So then they're easy to get back. But if you're going after something that's really controversial, yeah, you've got a big fight on your hands. Thank you. At this point, I'd like to bring Oliver into the picture, whether it's regarding FOI or something else that you face, your great challenges as far as your work is concerned. Yeah, so I've actually never lodged a FOI request. I've only had a short career in journalism so far. And I think my experience speaks to what you two were talking about in regards to kind of making that space and having that time to really go follow through with that process. And I suppose... Yeah, I'm just investing my time more in developing relationships with sources and and looking for those stories that way because, yeah, in the newsrooms I've been in at this point in my career, the idea of lodging a freedom of information request hasn't been something that's been immediately canvassed as an option. Whistleblowers, though, I mean, that's something that you'd be (laughs) conscious of in your cultivating sources. Have you found any, I guess, issues in trying to protect those sources yet, Oliver? Yeah, absolutely. So I work in Alice Springs, which is a town of 25,000 people. And so far I've worked with a few whistleblowers. And basically word can get around quite quickly as to who the whistleblower is. 
So I suppose from my perspective, the way that I try to protect both myself and the whistleblower is by just being really upfront and transparent with the people about you know, what they're getting themselves into, but also the change that they may or may not bring about. I think when I'm working with people who have reached this point where they decide, okay, I'm just going to go to the media, because usually they've gone through a few other hoops and often whistleblowers come to the media as a last resort. Certainly on two occasions where they've been relatively high-profile stories, the idea was that this is going to be the, the straw that breaks the kernel back. When people know what's going on here, it's going to be huge and it's going to change. And I just have to say, that's not what journalism does. If anything, it's going to amplify or possibly even make your problem worse. We're not going to be here to solve your problem and, and the systems that, that could might not even respond to the story in that way. So, yeah, I, I suppose in terms of protecting my whistleblowers, it's just about being upfront about you know, what, what it is that journalists do. Sometimes it, it works out really well. In the case of the Ibis Hotel in Alice Springs, we were able to kind of shine a light on this fact that you know, if you're someone who's in a workplace who's seeing discrimination at, at this point, you can't make an official complaint to an anti-discrimination commission. And then someone in South Australia, the anti-discrimination commissioner in South Australia saw that and said, well, that's, that's bad. Obviously, you should be able to do that. And now she's working with the Attorney General to try and maybe make that structural change. But I think that's probably an exception to the rule. Yeah, I think the difficulty that journalists face, particularly now in relation to the confidential sources and whistleblowers, is the digital footprint that, that we all leave. Um, and once upon a time, you wouldn't have been as paranoid about the communications that you'll have. But now, particularly around national security, there will be a level of, of fear and I think, you know, genuinely held concern that your phone would be covertly monitored either through call charge records, which are picking up the numbers that your phone receives in terms of people calling you or, or that you dial, or alternatively, and at a higher level, even covertly issued warrants to intercept communications, to intercept calls. And, you know, we'll never really know. We'll, we'll only find out if someone's prosecuted and, and there's put on, onto the evidentiary record the details, the warrants that, that led to our phones being off. But I remember in 2007 being concerned that my phone might have been, been off and that was during the reporting that I was doing on about the Australian Federal Police's terrible handling of what the AFP claim was a really serious terrorism case involving Dr Muhammad Hanif and he was the young doctor working at the Gold Coast Hospital out here with his wife and he was arrested and held in custody for a significant period while the police were leaking very damaging claims about him and his alleged connection to a bombing in Scotland that he had nothing to do with and, and the links that were being drawn were really quite mischievous and misleading. But it was getting a huge amount of play 
in that year, and you'll recall 2007, towards the end of 2007, is when there was a federal election and, and John Howard went to the polls and Kevin Rudd was the opposition leader. So it was a, it was a story that I think the government was happy to go along with uh, at the time Kevin Andrews was the immigration minister because it demonstrated a government that was tough on, on crime, tough on terrorism. But it was, it was a furphy and... And it was exposed as a furphy by Muhammad's lawyer, a very well-intentioned and an honourable, decent man called Stephen Kime, a barrister in Brisbane. And I knew of Stephen through another contact. And, and he began confidentially showing and sharing with me the AFP materials that he was receiving. For example, the record of interview that Muhammad Hanif had done and other documents that demonstrated the complete opposite of what the AFP was self-servingly leaking to the rest of the media. And so we started running, I started reporting on the truth of it without disclosing where this material had come from. The AFP's then commissioner, Mick Kilty, was furious about this and complained very, very strongly to my then editor-in-chief, Chris Mitchell, who's very very strong editor and, and backed me to the hilt but you know it got pretty hairy and after Muhammad Hanif was eventually freed with an apology by the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions with ultimately a public inquiry into what had gone wrong and complete vindication of Muhammad Hanif and quite strong criticisms of the process Mick Kilty and the AFP still wanted to have Stephen Kime the whistleblower formally disciplined by the Queensland's legal services body in a way that could have lost him his career as a, as a senior barrister. And, and so you just have this situation where even after all of the, the truth is out there, the authorities hate the fact that they've been upended on, on what might have seemed a really clever strategy at the time and will still try to extract, I think, a price and, and that's why it's very important that when you have a, a source, you just have to stick with the source and back him or her the whole way and, and also be pretty honest and open at the, at the outset to say, look, you could end up being identified through talking to me. You know, I'll do my best to protect you, but you know, if you tell someone that you're talking to me, that could also end up becoming part of a case against you. And as long as they understand the risks, then they're better prepared for the outcomes. Can I just uh, tease something out a bit more from what you just said? Did I hear you say the AFP was leaking information? Yes, yeah. Okay. So, and this is the other incredible double standard that, that we regularly see. The current Right to Know campaign that the, the media in Australia is, is united on is highlighting how your right to the information that journalists are trying to deliver is, is being eroded by the, the kinds of oppressive tools that are being utilised with raids on journalists' homes, with raids on workplaces, tightening of laws and so on. But as Lenore Taylor said in the session earlier today, Lenore, the Guardian's editor, politicians and senior bureaucrats are very good at issuing their own self-serving leaks to favoured media outlets and journalists, and and we are duty bound to protect <laughs> them as sources as well. So it just 
sticks in my craw that, that there's this double standard being played where the government wants to tighten the screws and, not, and try to prevent the stories that they haven't formally leaked themselves. But when it comes to their own leaks, they want you to go to the mat, to go to the, do whatever it takes, go to jail if necessary, to protect their confidences. They don't want to be exposed as a leaker. They, they want to pretend that that story just materialised and they, they're not behind it. So there's this terrible hypocrisy at the same time. Thank you. I was reading a piece recently by Annika Smethurst in which she provided a rather intimate account of the personal trauma that she is undergoing as a result of the raid on her apartment. Do you have any personal anecdotes or accounts of how you went through similar kinds of worry, anxiety as you went about doing your job? I think Hedley should talk about being shot at. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Alison. Well, in 2002 in Brisbane, my, my wife and I were asleep or almost asleep, and we heard some very loud noises that I thought was a tree falling onto the roof, the carport roof of our house. In fact, someone had fired four bullets at our home, and one of those bullets very narrowly missed us. It went through the window above our heads in our bedroom, and another bullet went through our children's playroom wall. And it is a crime that affected us deeply at the time and for a few years and unfortunately we don't to this day know who perpetrated it. We have some strong suspicions and the police certainly pursued many leads. I think they were a bit frustrated though because they said there were too many potential suspects. (laughs) Um, um, But I think that that was one of the most damaging kind of incidents in my career. Yeah, probably by far the most troubling for me because my children were very young at the time and and you have, you know, worries that that they will be targeted again. How can you keep your own family safe if something like that's happening at at night in the dark? And and so it was a, you know, I think one of the toughest things we've dealt with, but I'm glad to say that, you know, we haven't had any repeat incidents and we're in the same house and we've been there now 20 years and so we decided that while it would be tough for a while we had to stay there to for our own longer term benefit because if we had left we might have felt like it had been because of you know that we would regret it we would resent it and and that it would become you know more damaging to to walk away from a place that we love so we don't love it as much anymore, but we feel like we've still got to stay there. <laughs> did it make you more determined to keep doing what you were doing or did it change the way you operated? Yeah, look, I'd like to answer. I mean, the ideal answer would be for me to tell you that it made me so much more determined and the next day I went out and wanted to kick down doors. But it, it didn't actually... It, it really made me question whether I should actually be doing this because I couldn't justify in my own mind the risks that potentially were being visited on my wife and children and and so I became quite angry and I think even resentful of the fact that I was getting uh, as a result of the publicity surrounding that shooting I was getting so many other people strangers who wanted me to investigate the issues that 
they were dealing with because they believed if I'd been shot at, I must have been getting results so I could get a result for them. You know? and, and, and I just didn't want to hear from these people for a while and I think I was in a pretty bad place. So it took quite some time to sort of work through that. And then, you know, you get your mojo back and you're sort of, you're okay. But it was, you know, probably touch and go for a while. I'd, I'd like to come back and explore this topic in relation to the AFP raids a bit more. But first, I want to apologise for having made you revisit these oh, That's right. Painful like, I used to actually burst into tears when people talked about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I'm good now. But it's one of those things like, you know, I think when you have real trauma, it is always below the surface. So, it's good now. Thank you. The, the three trolls in my Twitter inbox telling me they're going to find the skeletons in my closet. It puts it into perspective. <laughs> <laughs> If I could just come back to FOI, you know, you, you both painted a rather grim picture as to how inefficient or inefficacious the FOI system is. I'm looking at the objects section of FOI Act, the Commonwealth FOI Act, and if you will indulge me, I'll just quickly skim through this. The objects of this Act are to give the Australian community access to information held by the government of the Commonwealth by A, requiring agencies to publish the information, by providing for a right of access to documents, and the Parliament intends by these objects to promote Australia's representative democracy by contributing towards the following. Increasing participation in government processes with a view to promoting better informed decision-making, B, increasing scrutiny, discussion, comment, and review of the government's activities. What do you think? Well, it is obviously very interesting because one of the exemptions that they will often use is deliberative process. And that is that the senior bureaucrats will say they want to be able to give frank and fearless advice without it being subject to public scrutiny, which I, I find unbelievable. And that is actually an exemption they can use, but it is subject to the public interest test. So that means arguments favouring disclosure must outweigh arguments favouring non-disclosure. And at one stage, Campbell Newman, my old friend as a Premier back in Queensland, he wanted to bring that deliberative process in without being subjected to the public interest test, meaning it was just a, a clean exemption like Cabinet at one stage, that they could apply that so that no advice as into the decision-making of government would ever come to light through FOI, which, of course, we were incensed about. But it's a really hard thing to try to sell to the public as to why you should be incensed about this. You know, this means that the minister could go against this advice for you know, his own purposes or her own purposes, or that they can give advice that, you know, is completely incorrect or, you know, not... So it, it, was, it was just kind of phenomenal that that would be argued. And, look, governments now, if they could get that deliberative process as a clear exemption, they would. But we have fought, fortunately, and so far, touch wood, it hasn't come in. But it is still there as an exemption that is subject to the public interest test. So all those issues... I mean, FOI is supposed to be a pro-disclosure bias. It's supposed to say that all the information should be available to you unless there's a good reason why it shouldn't be made available. Instead, all the information... This is the government does, and this is the way they do it. All the information 
shouldn't be made available to you unless there's a good reason why it should. So that's kind of the way you, you're doing it. A lot of them, they don't work on a pro-disclosure bias and they do work together. Once they find one loophole, then they all... And they meet. The, all the FOI people meet and, and, yeah, you just come up against it. So, yeah, it is grim at the moment. After Fitzgerald in Queensland, we got a new act in 2009, the same with New South Wales. They are the better acts. They still need to be changed. But this is why we need to unite together to fight for these laws to be updated and made with the pro-disclosure bias, get rid of the loopholes and for the units to be properly funded and the Office of the Information Commissioner in Australia to be properly funded so it doesn't take a year to go through a review. And also, so it's not hard for Joe Public to make an application at my workshop yesterday. A lot of people, you know, took on board different tricks. Because it is, it comes down to tricks, how to, the tactics they use so that what you can do to navigate, it's like a maze, you know. Oh, there's a brick wall, you know, get around it. And it shouldn't be like that. It's supposed to be user-friendly. They're supposed to help you. So, so yeah, it is a complete furphy, that whole, the reason it exists. I mean, it all sounds good. But government doesn't want that. They're control freaks. They, don't, they want to be able to control what gets out there. They resent the fact that they have to give you something because it's the legislation. So the only way we can do it is to use people power to enforce it. Alison, how do you know when somebody hasn't just gone, oh, I've got this FOI, I'll just quickly put that in the shredder. Nothing to give you. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, you know, the documents are there. Yeah, they've got the, the documents that are captured. They could do that. Well, you don't basically. You don't know. But my understanding is there, I mean, this is great about technology. There's always a blueprint or a footprint, you know, whatever. Like it's not as easy to do that anymore. So for that reason, it's good. But also, and this is where whistleblowers, this is the connection with whistleblowers that really works. A lot of them will, will tell you exactly the document to look for. So you know it exists. Sometimes they'll even give you a copy so, so that you ask for it and then, you know, go through the process of, of getting it. And that's a way of protecting whistleblowers. So it's, it's really hard for them to do that. Now, sorry, Hedley, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, I think the, the capacity of governments, state and federal and agencies, to stymie information, to restrict the flow of information to the public through journalists, has never been stronger because... Unfortunately, as a result of the incredible challenges that are facing most media companies, the ability and of journalists to be doing their jobs as diligently as, as they would have done them when we had many more journalists in our newsrooms, it has diminished. I mean, it's no secret that most media companies, compared with, say, 20 years ago, are doing it tough and trying to find the models that will fund the journalism that we regard as important. And I think what governments have been doing, unforgivably, given that, that structural weakness in, in the media, and hopefully a temporary structural weakness until we've figured it all out with paywalls and so on, but what governments are doing to exploit that is to, again, wind back the information, take advantage of the fact that fewer journalists like Alison are available to challenge and, and attend the hearings to demand and argue for release of, of documents and not just wind it back but, but then go on the front foot with raids such as the ones we saw a couple of months ago which I think Blind Freddy could see were designed 
to send a message using the media who is filming those raids, send a message to all future intending potential possible whistleblowers, this is what can happen. If you do this, if you step out of line, if you leak something that might be embarrassing for our minister or our department secretary or, or our commissioner, there'll be a raid and the journalists' sources will be released and disclosed and you could be one of those. It was a show. It wasn't, in my view, designed to actually obtain some incredible fresh piece of evidence, a smoking gun as to who the source was. This was an exhibition utilising the media while attacking the media to try to prevent future leaks that could have been embarrassing. And I think Australians, unfortunately, we don't get angry enough about this, this, this kind of campaign by governments because we are funding their work, their anti-democratic work. We're actually the taxpayers, the bunnies, who are paying for governments to use public servants against the public interest. And I, I think that if more Australians were as frustrated as journalists about this, then, then perhaps some change could be affected. You know, if more parliamentarians were lobbied about this by citizens, then it wouldn't seem just like the journalists were having a whinge. It would feel like a real issue. And, you know, you talk about the show and it having a chilling effect and everything. The Press Freedom Summit that Peter Grester's organisation, the Alliance for Journalist Freedom, did the other day, uh, did the other month. Ida Butros was there speaking and she said, we've already lost a couple of stories. So this idea that it was done as a, as a show to try and have that chilling effect, I would say, based on what Ida said at that summit, it's already starting to happen. We're already starting to see some of those stories that might have come to light not uh, come to light. As a student journalist, what do you put out to us for coming into the journalism career and the workforce, what can we do in terms of FOIs and making sure it gets better reformed and obtaining them? It is, it's hard for student journalists because FOIs are expensive as well. Among everything else, among being tricky and problematic and frustrating, they're expensive. So, look, I know that Walkley was looking at doing a bit of a FOI scholarship at some stage, which would help with that aspect of it. Certainly... I'm happy to provide advice. Anyone who writes to me and needs advice in trying to narrow the scope and trying to get the price down and things like that, I'm more than happy to do that because it's really important. But it's getting behind this campaign, really. We need the laws changed. And, you know, you've got the application fees, for example. Some of them, a lot of them, and we've said this before, require checks for you to have a valid application. They still require checks. Who here has a checkbook? Anyone? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Marty. Yeah. <laughs> I know you do. All right. But most people do not have a checkbook. I've never had a checkbook. And it's, it, I find that incredible that they will use archaic processes again to make it really, really hard for people. So that sort of thing, just to get you know, they should always all have online portals. Only three of the states have online portals to be able to make applications. You should be able to pay by credit card. My God. <laughs> you know, so I just find that incredible. So, yeah, I think that's really the most important thing. And it's lobbying, yeah, getting behind, you know, social media, highlighting our campaign and what we need to do and asking people to, you know, contact 
their MPs. I mean, I've gone through, and, and because of the connection with Sally and FOI, I've gone through Our Lady Vanishes, which has way more followers than I do, and lobbied, you know, asked them to get behind us too, that our support is there. Are you, are you able to share with us any figures as to what your budget is for blowing on <laughs> FOI? Well, I just spend the money and wait until they tell me I'm spending too much. And so far... That hasn't happened. But, you know, I'm, I'm careful in, in some of it, you know. What, that what it, has been your most expensive application? <laughs> well, sometimes they'll come back to you, and it is a tactic, and they'd use it on a student journalist. They don't tend to use it too much on me anymore. And they'll come back and they'll say, $10,000 if you want that, you know, for, I kind of remember some of the applications, but they will give you exorbitant fees as and then you always laugh it's always a funny tactic that one and then I say so what has been captured you know and and you go back and under the act I mean there's all these things under the act that they have to do so I always have to remind them under the act that they must you know as someone who's they have to actually provide you with the information that you ask for to actually explain how they got that amount so and there's a lot of different things as I said tactics that you learn over the years and that's why I'm happy to share share my knowledge with anyone so anyone my email will certainly you know happy to share it and help you just going back to support from the general public do you think they understand the enormity of where press freedom's at the vulnerability no i think that most people would have less understanding of it now than 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 say they would have had 15, 20 years ago if this campaign had been on then. And I, I suspect that that's partly because of the splintering of the media and the choices that we all make in terms of reading, listening to, watching news. My children, they're 20, almost 21 and 18, their parents have both been long-time newspaper journalists, but I haven't seen my children pick up any of the newspapers in our home for a decade, you know, and I find that really troubling. It doesn't mean that they are not getting news, but they're getting news through what I regard as f- f- quite badly filtered sources through, through social media, Facebook and so on. And I think that that's regrettable. We have less impact in our individual media outlets because there are fewer eyeballs on our products as a younger generation and as you know, what were existing readers, have so many more choices. Now, you could say, well, that's in many ways a good thing, but it does lead to, I think, the dilution potentially of, you know, important messages and campaigns such as this one that's being run. And one of the, one of the really uplifting <laughs> things about this current campaign is that we are united on it. You know, it is something that the entire industry has actually teamed up to do. It's pretty hard to get the Australian and the ABC on a unity ticket, but we're on it, which is commendable. I'd like to introduce a new subheading to our discussion here, and I'd like to hear from each of you. Is defamation a problem in your line of work? And if so, what kind of challenges do you face, and what kind of support do you get from within your organisation? If I can start with Oliver. Yeah, so... I learned early on in my journalism career that the, I think I'm right in saying the best defence for defamation is truth. So if something's true, you can't, you haven't defamed someone. Hopefully, all the young journalists, you know, who are going into their first few jobs, like I have been in the last few years, know that that is the fundamental thing that underlies. And you a can't lot of defame defamation. the dead too. And That's you can't so. defame the dead. Yeah. So I always just, you know, refer upwards and get my editors and legal team to 
to look at anything that's potentially defamatory, and it's always worked out well for me. Thank you. Alice. I'll find lawyers. I don't know how you go with the lawyers, Headley, but we're always trying to push. Now, come on. This is, you know, because it is. It does the truth. It is it's truth, but also there are always other issues. I haven't had too much of a trouble. I mean, there are some people that are, are key litigants that will just, even before you write an article, will send you a lawyer letter, like, you know, 20 pages long with all the things they're going to do when you print an article. So, I mean, it's a tactic. Yeah, we have our legal departments. They go through everything. We're really meticulous with that. And again, touch wood, I haven't been sued for defamation. But yeah, I think it's really important as a good journalist that you always check everything and, and obviously, you know, double check, triple check, go over everything, make sure that you're in the right. But there's so many things now. I mean, the Me Too movement's really brought a lot of things to, to light that you just think which way that's going to go. But yeah, I mean, it's just about being thorough and having a, a, a good legal team behind I've, I've got an ear now for listening to where the lawyers have gone through the script of the podcast. And so there's the kind of the, fl- the narrative flow of the, you know, the hosts and the bar. And then, and then kind of, at this point, we don't, we can't say for sure that this person, you know what I mean? There's kind of like caveats to just, that the lawyers have kind of gone through and just been like, oh yeah, no, just, just slightly rephrase that. And then <laughs> I, can, I can hear what's happened in, in the background. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think truth should be a complete answer to defamation, but it's not, unfortunately. And, and doesn't, the truth of a story that you've written doesn't prevent people, for example, who feel terribly slighted by the truth and who have a lot of funds at their disposal having a crack. And this, this was my experience a few years ago, perhaps five years ago, when we were doing some pretty rugged reporting on Clive Palmer. And it was um, when Clive was, was flush with funds and, and promising to be Australia's next Prime Minister and running candidates in every seat. But he had some unorthodox business practices, including in the West, and we were highlighting those. And then Clive sued us in the Supreme Court of Queensland. And I think, like many cases that Clive brings against people, because of his superior financial firepower, he thinks that you'll just fold. Fortunately, at News Corp and in every newspaper where I've worked, we've been very strongly supported by editors and by the CEOs who will just back us up. When they know we've got it right or they believe in us, they'll back us up. And so we, we defended very strongly against that defamation action. It cost us a lot of money to get to a point where Clive realised that if he wanted to go on with it, he would have to actually get into the witness box and be asked a lot of difficult questions under oath about things he probably didn't want to discuss, including his business conduct. And so it ended up resolving with us walking away and him walking away bearing our own costs. But those costs, I don't know what his were, but ours would have been pretty close to six figures, pretty close to 100 grand. Now, you could have you know, employed you know, really good people in journalism for some time on that, but we had to spend that money defending you know, a fanciful defamation action that was brought notwithstanding the truth of the stories that he was suing over. So it's it's still a very costly process even when you're on the side of right because you just have to defend, defend, defend. And I think that it would put off a lot of people and, and probably cause them to self-censor 
if you run a smaller media outlet or you're a, a journalist, blogger, funding yourself, why would you risk that? Would you end up kind of gagging yourself on stuff that should be out there because you just can't afford those sorts of bills? So it's another reason why in this campaign we, we want to see reform of Australia's defamation laws as well to make our roles not, not above reproach but less costly when people want to have a crack. Yes, Professor Krishna Sen. I just wanted to get you back to the raids on ABC and, you know, on the houses of journalists. And you talked about the chilling effect of that having already killed some stories. But when we are playing all the time to get attention from the public, in some ways, was that an incident which focused our attention on the direction in which media freedoms are going in Australia? Because we often think of our journalists being automatically protected. I mean, you know, you don't get poisoned like you do in Russia and you don't get, well, you do get shot at, but you don't get quite killed uh, in this country. Whereas in other countries, these things happen. So we have this sense of, we have a lot of freedom. What are you guys complaining about? And that this suddenly brought the eyeballs of the public onto a story. So I wonder what the impact actually... Well, I, I think that the campaign that's, that's grown out of those raids would not have been anticipated by the government when it decided that the AFP should go along and do those raids or when the AFP decided that they would be able to suck up to the government by doing those raids. So they wouldn't have expected that these very different media organisations... So, so different in texture and approach, you know, from, as I said, the ABC, the Guardian and, and the former Fairfax Papers, now Nine and, and News Corp, coming together, you know, is quite astounding, but a demonstration of the frustrations. So perhaps, you know, it, it was an own goal by the government in doing that, but it, I don't think that the government's aims have been totally lost. Their aims in those raids in my view, were also to intimidate future whistleblowers. They'll still be intimidated. So there will be countless stories that we'll never know actually could have been ventilated. We'll never know what they were. They'll, because the persons who felt the conscience bound to actually produce those stories won't as a result of what's happened. And they won't until there is reform because they'll be too concerned about being caught up in it. But in terms of, you know, the, the government's strategy behind it all, well, I reckon that they would be now thinking, geez, we, we actually pushed a button there. We didn't realise it was going to blow up quite like that. And now, now I know that, you know, they're, they're spinning it as, like, journalists aren't above the law and, and so on. Well, it's just such a crap, glib response. Just a, another line of spin by written by one of the many hundreds of media communications experts in the government that is really, I think, quite offensive. Journalists don't see themselves above the law, but the government shouldn't be waving the big stick as, as an attempt to shut down free speech, as an attempt to prevent the, the embarrassing but important truths about what's going on in government being distributed by journalists to the public.
I just wanted to add one last thing to that. Secret is such a subjective term too. I mean, what they deem secret, confidential, you know, where's the confidentiality clause? Where did they sign a confidentiality agreement? Those sorts of things are classified. You know, I mean, that's the other issue. I mean, they can, they can use anything to wangle it into fitting their agenda. And I guess that's the problem is that when they have that agenda and obviously they've always had a whistleblowers, they've always wanted to use, you know, no whistleblower, if they can string one out to dry, you know, once a year they would because that's the best thing that they can do. And, and again, I, I drew upon one of my favourite, favourite stories over time on whistleblowers is the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg. I mean, if you want to have a look at somebody who really put everything on the line and couldn't get it printed for such a long time because of the government, you know, and, and this is about him just deciding that all the, the government spin was bullshit, basically, and they didn't want to go... He did one about Vietnam, saying they were winning the war, and they weren't. And he's like, well, no, we're not winning the war. And, and he decided he'd... he'd and, you know, he took photocopies of documents out every night, and he's living on a beach in Malibu, and he knew what he was putting on the line, but he believed in that ability to do that. And, and you know, whistleblowers and the, the press, and eventually, because all the press ended up running it, rather than just one, they were protected. And this is where United, us as the press us as the people, is, is the power. This is where you, it does make a difference. And you do find out things that, in that case, ultimately saved lives, millions of lives. Um, Hedley, I think you, you made a really valid point, you know, not for the first time, but I mean, people made it. Those raids occurred either because the federal government directed the federal police to make those raids, or the federal police decided to make those raids to please the federal government. Either way, how bad is it that the federal police is becoming a political arm of the government in a way that we do not see state police happen in this country? I mean, to me, that is worrying beyond belief. And I just would like the comments of all of you on that point, please. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's difficult to quantify, but I think many of us have been deeply suspicious of the federal police as a more overtly political tool of the federal government than any state police forces have been, perhaps with the exception of Sir Terence Lewis in Queensland and, and his force when Joe Bjorki-Peterson was the Premier. The AFP has always had that whiff about it and I think that when the government wants to rely on the AFP to try to block a suspected whistleblower or, or prevent more embarrassing disclosures, the AFP... And I'm sure that there will be a charter, there will be statutory requirements for the AFP to, to jump into line to do that. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that they're actually breaking their own charter or laws in appeasing the government's will on this, but it seems that they do it with an enthusiasm and a readiness that other commissioners of state police forces don't exhibit. And that contributes to this deep suspicion that you and I share, that the AFP is often too readily used as this sort of blunt instrument of prime ministers and cabinet ministers and department heads. If I can ask Hedley or anyone else, what do you make of the Attorney General's statements where he said he would be disinclined to prosecute the journalists in the AFP raids and the subsequent stand where he demanded virtually that no prosecution should commence without his green light. Well, Are I'm, you assured by that? 
Well, I think that this is another thing that came up a lot in the Press Freedom Summit that we had a couple of months ago. I think that's, that's great that he said that, but also these are conventions that are being followed, and, and if he decided to change his mind, then maybe they would be. And are we happy to keep relying on these conventions and, you know, goodwill and good on your mate, and we're all, you know, the, the media and the, and the press and the government. It's like, it's, maybe it's time to, to stop relying on conventions and start legislating so that a comment like that couldn't be reversed overnight. Well said, Oliver. Do you have something? To yeah, I, I mean, I'm just going to agree with that. Because, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, with these sorts of conventions, as you say, I mean, the word of a politician, really, what is that worth? So, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm completely, I can't say it better myself, you know, legislation, please, reform, legislation. I agree with both Oliver and Alison, but I feel also that, you know, that statement that, that he made, while you know, you want to welcome it as a journalist, but at the same time, you're kind of feeling like you've been wedged, that, like, we're somehow now a bit beholden or we should be thankful or grateful for this mm. this undertaking, if that's what it is. And in a perverse way, you know, I don't want to see this happen, but in a perverse way, I think perhaps actually a prosecution of a journalist for doing her or his job would actually be one of the most powerful examples to the public at large about why and how the, the governments have gone way too far. Maybe, you know, an attempted show trial like that wouldn't be a bad thing as long as it ended well. But I still think that the ABC's been raided and Annika Smethurst has been raided and there's still... This campaign is gaining traction, but it's still not... I don't think it's still mainstreamed in a way that other campaigns have. You know what I mean? Just these, these really horrific things happening, like a journalist being, or the ABC being raided. I don't know if it's having the effect that we're all suggesting it is. I don't think this campaign, I think it's going really well, but I don't think it's really caught on in, in conversations that I'm having with people in my everyday life, you know? I think it's still got a way to go. Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, the problem is, I guess, the spin doctors and, I, you know, and there is a lot of bad journalism out there too and a lot of that is through the fake news the fake news has done nothing for journalists as a profession like we're probably more unpopular than we've ever been and that's that's really hard in that respect because you know we I mean I even had my stepdaughter the other day talk about the power of media and as though we're kind of some sort of evil <laughs> force that and I find that really hard you know like that whole like we're trying to you know like a propaganda trying to mold your thoughts or and that's troubling for me more than and I don't think that's existed to the extent it does now and so I, I fear for that aspect of it and I fear for I guess our plight on that basis that the noble profession that we are that we all work to be like why we become journalists I mean my obsession with justice is, is why I became a journalist and, you know, fairness and, and making sure that the, the small people that don't have a voice, and I say small people meaning any citizen because any citizen on their own, it's hard. You, you, get a, you amplify your voice and then all of a sudden, you know, you get things happen. You get a light shone on stuff and, and every one of us will be able to tell you of the stories and the good that has come out of the stories once this is, you know, I mean... Dr. Death, you know, the whistleblower there that Headley did. And then, you know, I'll have, like, with Sally's story and The Lady Vanishes, I mean, she, we're, we're heading towards an inquest. That would never...
never have happened. They've put her on the missing person list. Justice, you know, you get traction. She's been trying for 23 years to achieve something we achieved in six months once it was amplified. So the power of the media, it's just, it's so important. So, yeah. I think we've made things a bit tougher for ourselves as well while thinking we're doing the right thing. And in this regard, and you're talking before about your stepdaughter's perception of your work, and and I have similar (laughs) conversations with my daughter, who's 18, and spends a lot of time on Twitter. I can't stand Twitter. And so I don't have a handle on Twitter, like as in my name on Twitter or anything. And, And I know that I'm in a very, very small minority in the media in terms of being absent from Twitter but every journalist that I talk to about their interaction in social media in this way leaves me thinking they're just getting and so much of their time and and energy seems to be taken up responding to people many of whom are trolls or anonymous who are diverting them from their primary purpose which is to create and cultivate contacts and break stories undermining their confidence possibly contributing to mental health issues because there's just so much hatred and anger and activism on Twitter and grievances are amplified thousands of times on Twitter. And, you know, I I think that if I were teaching journalism at a university, you know, I'd probably be trying to discourage my students from being involved in Twitter unless they can point to some fantastic stream of information that they get that causes them to break a story. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. Thank you very much. So we'll try and wrap up now. I'll start with Oliver and then so three items. So your wish list our for... Our three wishes. Our three, three. wishes for... Yep. Press uh, freedom. Press freedom. All right. Yep. So, yeah, I already used, I used up one of my ones earlier, which is about moving away from convention and towards legislation. The second is just a greater understanding amongst people about this situation that we're in. And I think, you know, looking at some of the comparisons between comparable democracies and media systems and working out, oh, hey, actually, yeah, we do actually have a few limitations here in Australia. Connor Duffy, I think, who just finished up as the US correspondent for the ABC, just last week did a very current, concise comparison of this is what it's like working as a journalist in America and this is what it's like working as a journalist in Australia. And it canvassed everything from, you know, access to the Oval Office to reporting on a bushfire, he just found that everything was much easier in America. There were less hoops he had to jump through. So I think just, yeah, just a greater understanding of of the fact that, yeah, we we do have a pretty free and and liberal country in Australia, but there are these, you know, these things that we still need to work through. And the third thing on my wish list, I'm going to have to take on notice because I haven't lined anything up. Okay. I'm going to take one of yours. <laughs> okay, firstly, I'll go through. I've got a list because when Joseph asked it, I wrote it down. So new FIOI legislation for Australia, and that's all states as well, to bring it up to date with technology because so much has happened in the time, even 2009, where the latest legislation is in Queensland and New South Wales. Funding commitments for FOI review agencies. So the OAIC is incredibly underfunded, which is why they take a year to do a review. They have to have sufficient funding to be able to do their job correctly. As per our democratic right, three, I'm in WA, this is really important, a WA, WACAT, 
I call it, which needs to be in WA as a review. They don't have that in WA. It's the only state that doesn't have it. And this would be, if you have to go to review after the information commissioner in WA, you have to go straight to the Supreme Court. There is nothing in between, which is absolutely ridiculous. And can you imagine as a Joe public here, you'd have to be a barrister. You'd have to hire a barrister because it's the Supreme Court. So you need a WACAT, which is you have a QCAT in Queensland and an NCAT in New South Wales. So that's, I'm taking your fourth one, all online portals for applications. So no checks and <laughs> and also a fee-free if they go past the processing time. So if they go over the time that they're meant to legislate, it should be free. That is the case in New South Wales. So they should all do it. Thank um, you very much. Yeah, I'd like to approach it slightly differently. I think that press freedom will improve faster with the commercial improvement in the fortunes of media companies. And I think that we have been marginalised and our predicament's been made tougher by the tech titans, Google and Facebook, continually stealing, ripping off our work and reposting it and getting away with that. And I think that if they could be forced to not only stop but compensate media companies with tens of millions, I think hundreds of millions of dollars over the years... That would turn around newsrooms. We would be able to re-employ many of the great journalists. And this is the second part of my <laughs> three-part thing. We would be able to re-employ many of the great journalists who have left the industry, who are now working for governments against our interests. And then with that, the strength that would come from our rehiring of these people and rehiring them because we've we've got the funds as a result of the tech titans being pushed back and no longer being able to rip off our work, then I think that we would be able to not just break much better stories but win public trust so that as an industry our longevity is assured and and that would be in the interests of of all of us. So I think a commercial outcome that's beneficial for us will, will drive the press freedom debate from another angle. Thank you very much. i bring this session to a close. Let me begin by thanking Lauren Dixon and her fabulous team who traveled in to organize this event, the State Library. And thank you all for coming and for participating. Thank you very much. Please thank the panelists as well. Listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com/slash/subscribe, and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia.